Let's do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there. I'm Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. You can call me Andrea. Welcome to Talk About Talk, the communication-focused podcast that provides us with the knowledge, strategies, and confidence to enrich our relationships and enhance our career success. Okay, let's do this. This episode of Talk About Talk is focused on AI or artificial intelligence. Let me start by asking you something. Have you seen the Matrix movie? I know many of you have because people seem to mention it all the time. If not, I recommend you check it out. Essentially, the movie is about how AI or artificial intelligence destroys humanity. Well, except for the humans that the AI uses in its massive power farm. Yes, humans are used as a power source to fuel the AI. What a nightmare, right? The Matrix movie was first released in 1999, so here we are 20 years later. The term AI has become much more common in our vernacular for reasons that you'll hear about in a moment from our guest expert. But I feel like the fear that people have of computers and robots with AI taking over the world is at least as prevalent today. Perhaps fueled by the Matrix movie and perhaps fueled by the unknown, the uncertainty associated with what AI can and will do, not just for us, but to us. Well, after listening to this podcast, I promise you will feel more enthusiastic and optimistic about AI thanks to our guest expert. I'm going to start with a quick foundation for you with definitions and examples of how AI is being used. This really is an overview, a top-line tutorial. Then I will introduce our guest expert, Avi Goldfarb, the marketing professor, economist, and author of the best-selling book on AI called Prediction Machines. If you feel more confident about your understanding and more optimistic about your future with AI once you've listened to this episode, then I personally will be thrilled. Okay, let's talk AI, starting with definitions. My goal here is to simplify things for you. Here's my suggestion. When you're thinking about AI and its related terms, think of a hierarchy. At the top, the umbrella term, if you like, is computer science. That's the most general term. Then there's AI or artificial intelligence. Then there's machine learning, which is a subset of AI, and deep learning, which is a subset of machine learning. Got it? So AI is a subset of computer science. AI is defined as machines that do what normally requires human intelligence. That's really all you need to remember. Again, AI is machines that can do what normally requires human intelligence. So it's machines. It's artificial, as in not natural and not human. As you will hear in a minute from Professor Avi Goldfarb, AI is a moving target. Once a specific technology becomes widespread, like say when computers conquered sophisticated mathematical calculations with calculators, we stopped calling that AI. Then computers conquered the game of chess, And now we aren't as excited about this and we're not referencing it as an example of AI. As Larry Tesler, a famous computer scientist says, AI is whatever hasn't been done yet. I love that line. If I ever get stuck in a room with a bunch of computer scientists, I'm going to say, well, as Tesler says, AI is whatever hasn't been done yet. Back to definitions. Under computer science and AI, we have machine learning. Most of what we hear about in terms of AI these days is actually machine learning. You can think of machine learning as prediction technology. 
Machine learning technology is responsible for things like autofill when you're writing texts and searching something on Google. Yes, the simple search function is AI. It's prediction, right? By the way, I found a very cool article in Fast Company, one of my favorite sources lately, with a list of 40 incredibly useful things that you didn't know Google search could do. There's a link to the article in the show notes, but let me share with you a few now. First, do you ever need to just slow down and focus? Well, try typing breathing exercise into Google. You'll get a one-minute guided breathing exercise that helps recenter your brain. Awesome. Second, if you're ever hanging a picture on the wall and you want to make sure it's level, just type bubble tool into Google and you'll get automatically uploaded an on-demand leveling tool. And then you can make sure the picture you're hanging is perfectly straight. And a third example from this list is the color picker tool that lets you select a color and find its hex code, its RGB value, its CMYK value, and more, and to easily convert from one color code type to another. Some of you may wonder what we're talking about, but those of you who listen to the Talk About Talk podcast on color know exactly what I'm talking about, right? What else is AI? Well, how about visual perception, which is exactly what it sounds like, predicting what an image is. You'll hear more about this in a minute from Professor Goldfarb. Then there's the Netflix library. Do you ever notice how Netflix is always trying to predict what you're going to watch next? Driverless cars are AI. AI also helps us with disaster relief management. Thanks to AI, we can map disaster sites in real time, enabling survivors to be located. AI also helps us with weather forecasting. Of course, that's predictive technologies. There's also translation and speech recognition and Siri and Alexa. They learn our voices. They learn and they start to predict our preferences. Oh yeah, while I'm at it, please ask your Siri or your Alexa. Hey Siri, please subscribe to the Talk About Talk podcast. Thanks Siri. Just to confirm, would you like to subscribe to the podcast Talk About Talk? Oh my God, that's for real. Yes, I would. Oh, she just told me I'm already subscribed. Okay. I could go on and on. But let me introduce you to Professor Avi Goldfarb. Professor Goldfarb was one of my favorite colleagues when I was on the faculty at the University of Toronto. He received his PhD in economics from Northwestern University, and he's now the Rotman Chair in Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare and Professor of Marketing at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Avi is also Chief Data Scientist at the Creative Destruction Lab, Senior Editor at Market Science, and a Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. His research on the economics of technology has also been discussed in Congressional Testimony, European Commission Documents, The Economist, The New York Times, and elsewhere. Along with Professor Ajay Agrawal and Joshua Gans, Avi is the author of the best-selling book called Prediction Machines, The Simple Economics of Artificial Intelligence. I'll leave a link to his book in the show notes on the website so you can easily access it there. Avi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Let's start with some context. I think our listeners would love to hear how you came from studying economics and then working as a marketing professor at a business school to writing a bestseller on AI. Okay, so I was a graduate student in the late 1990s in economics, and there was this crazy new technology called the internet. And so right. my, my dissertation was about competition between search engines before there was such thing as Google. And uh, So at the time, just to yeah. remind some of us or to provide yeah. context for the younger listeners, yeah. 
What were those search engines again? So uh, the there was AOL had its own search engine. Right. There was Lycos. There was Hotbot, and the dominant player was Yahoo. Right. And so I Yahoo was still around yep. in, in a way. Um, and Google, I should say, Google was in the final data that I used for my dissertation because it was from 2000, and Google had just come out of beta. And I had 20-something search engines in the data, and Google was number 17. So they were, they were there, but they were tiny. Right. So my teaching was marketing and statistics. Um, and Jay Agarwal, my co-author in the book, started this program called the Creative Destruction Lab. And the Creative Destruction Lab is a program to help uh, science-based startups scale up. And we started it in 2012. And in that first year, there was this, this company called Atomwise, which called itself an AI company. Okay. And we never really heard of AI outside of science fiction. And they were uh, building AI for biotech. Then the next year, there were a couple of AI companies. Right. And then the next year, it became clear that this was a big new technology because there was a flood of companies doing yeah. AI. Yeah. And pretty soon at the lab, we had uh, more AI startups than anywhere else in the world. Uh, because of some quirky history of Toronto um, having an important place in that tech. So Toronto is an AI cluster? Yes. Or at least it started that way. It, it still plays an important role. Uh, but the, the core technology underlying the current excitement of AI is something called deep learning. Yeah. And the, perhaps the core researcher in deep learning is a man named Jeff Hinton, who's a computer science professor emeritus now here at the University of Toronto. Okay. And so his graduate students and sort of people who worked with him were uh, walking through University of Toronto 10, 20 years ago, and those people now run uh, AI research at Apple, Facebook, and um, at OpenAI, et cetera. So you know, Toronto had this really important role, uh, especially in the early stages. And so as when, when people realized there's a commercial opportunity here, which was around 2012. What um, happened in 2012? Um, a team of Jeff Hinton's... Um, graduate students, essentially, won this competition called the ImageNet competition. And what ImageNet is, is a competition to label pictures. What does that mean, labeling pictures? Uh, so figuring out what's in a picture. So you see a picture of a Bernie's Mountain Dog, and uh, the machine has to predict that, oh, that's a picture of a Bernie's Mountain Dog instead of a Chihuahua and instead of a Muffin. So it's a machine vision competition Hinton's team in 2012 was much, much better than anyone who'd ever come before in uh. anyone in that year, using this newly applied technology called deep learning. And in some sense, the technology goes back 30 years. But we finally figured out how to commercialize it in 2012, or that it really worked. And uh, the next year, almost everybody was using deep learning. And, um, and so people started to pay attention, more generally, around the commercial opportunities in this particular technology. Right. And, um, and that led to you know, lots of startup excitement here in Toronto, people largely coming out of Hinton's lab, but also out of Waterloo and a few other places. Um, and then more generally around the world, that was the opportunities became clear. And so then you fast forward to 2018, which is when your book was published. Yes. Can you give us a little bit of background in terms of definition? So you talked about deep learning, and we know a little bit about machine learning, and it may be a subset of AI. I've also heard machine learning. I've heard you say that machine learning is a subset of computer science. So how do we okay. think about all those terms when we hear them? I know the media can be sloppy right. when they're yes, they, um, talking so, about them. Okay, so, um, so artificial intelligence is defined as machines that can do what normally requires human intelligence. Right. Okay. Very That's broad. A, it's a very broad definition, and it's 
a moving target. Yep. So in the sense that you can imagine that in the 1940s, artificial intelligence would have been arithmetic, but then you know computers do arithmetic really well. Um, in the 1970s, we thought artificial intelligence was chess, but then computers solve chess. We don't really think about that as AI anymore, so it's this moving target. Now, uh, what machine learning is, is the branch of artificial intelligence. It's a type of artificial intelligence uh, research that has had massive advances in the last few years. So the reason we're talking about AI in 2019 and we yep. weren't talking about it in 2009 and we weren't talking about it in 1999 is because of machine learning. Okay. And most notably, within machine learning, this technology called deep learning. Um, so, so deep learning is a subset of, of machine, machine learning, learning which, and machine learning is a subset of AI. And, which is a subset of computer science. Okay, yes. got it. Um, and so, uh, but what we should think about machine learning is, is prediction technology. Okay. So if you've taken a stats course and you learned how to use uh, regression or, or an average to predict something, uh, machine learning is a variant of that kind of tool. So you just started to answer that question, but I'm looking for something maybe a little bit more definitive, and I've been actually thinking about this for the past week. Is machine learning anything more than linear regression? So Really? Well, um, <laughs> yes, uh, because it's really good. Okay, so... Um, so we're no longer, you know, so for what we call supervised learning, which is the dominant type of machine learning that we've been focused on, which is what you're using sort of inputs to predict outputs, which is what you do with the linear regression. It's right. sort of the same thing. You have right. a bunch of X's and you're using those to predict a Y. Um, so you have a bunch of images and you're using them to predict a label. Mm -hmm. You have a bunch of sentences and you're using them to predict meaning. Okay. It gets trickier. So though we can't do those things with linear regression. So images. So it's a good model to think so, of when you're trying to picture in your mind yes. what it is, but it, it's beyond that, okay? 100%. Because to be honest, over the last couple of weeks when I've been doing a little bit of research on AI, yeah. it, I just keep coming back to, this is what I learned in stats class. It, it's all about analysis of variance, finding out which variables predict an outcome, yes. which ones account for the most variance, right? Um, yes, yes, <laughs> okay. with a few nuances and tricks. But so um, I have a, some machine learning textbooks on the shelf here, and if you open them up, uh, the first 10 chapters will look like the first 10 chapters of your stats class. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, they, they relabel things. So what we used to call cluster analysis is now a version of unsupervised learning. Mm. Um, and uh, maximum likelihood is now, you know, part of machine learning in some, in some sense. Mm. So, but what's, there's a few things that are different. One is in inventing a new stats method, you had to prove that it worked in theory before showing that it worked in practice. And the machine learning norms are a little bit different, where they're very much about showing that you can predict out of sample. And so there's these holdout samples, and you show that you can predict out of sample, and if you do a good job, then we'll figure out the theory later. Typically, they do figure out the theory later, but the starting point is, can you incrementally improve the prediction, right. rather than can you prove you know, formally that this works with an infinite number of, area, of observations. Mm -hmm. So the other yeah. question that, that I was thinking about I think particularly when I was thinking about the title of your book, Prediction Machines, there's an article by uh, Malcolm Gladwell where he talks in The New Yorker years ago, like 15 years ago or more, he talks about collaborative filtering, which is yeah. early which, AI, right? Yes, 100%. There's a lineage from that Malcolm Gladwell article to AI if you sort of you know, track the academic citations. 
That said, that wasn't really how we thought about it right. because collaborative filtering doesn't really seem like artificial intelligence. Right. It just seems like good stats. It hadn't been labeled that way and yet. And so it hadn't been labeled that way yet because we hadn't... Um, hmm. what, what happened... There's a few sort of nuances of what happened here, which is, you know, I, I guess in some sense communication-related, which is the inspiration for deep learning. The idea of deep learning was to uh, be inspired by the model of how uh, brains worked um, and neurons interacted with each other to build a computer uh, that could think like a human. That could think like a human and then maybe think better than a human, right? Yeah, that Faster, yeah. more thoroughly, right. whatever. Now, it, in practice, it doesn't really think like a human, but what it, do, what it turned out to be really good at is, is predicting, predicting. So, which is the process of filling and missing information. Got it. So can you give us some examples of AI that we use in our everyday lives? Could be at home or at work, and I was thinking maybe even commuting between the two. So the most obvious is Google Search, sure. Um, others are uh, your maps, for example, you know, Waze or, or Google Maps, for that matter. How do they figure out what the best route from one place to another is? That's a prediction technology. They're predicting traffic and um, laying that on top of information they have about the map in speed limits to give you... Um, both a prediction about how long it's going to get there and a prediction about what the best route to take is. Right. And so that's, that's your community Waze one. is my number one favorite app on my phone, and I okay. say a couple things about it. First of all, it has, I'm sure, saved me hours of time. And secondly, it's saved me mental capacity that I can spend doing other things. I literally said to my son the other last night when he was arguing with Waze about how to come home, I said, can we just let Waze make that decision <laughs> and you and I can talk about something that matters? Right. So, yes, so the, you know, to the extent that machines are doing um, tasks that we don't, we don't really enjoy or that take time away from things we'd much rather be doing, this is fantastic. And, and Waze is a good example of that. Right. Um, and so, but beyond Google and Waze, so some of the most exciting applications, I think, are, are a little bit outside maybe the everyday, but they're really big. So maybe more than anything, the one I'm excited about is translation. Right. And so machine that is definitely related to communication. So let's talk is, about that. Is it's getting really good. Hmm. Uh, and so Jörg Brynjolfsson um, and, and his co-authors have this new paper showing when eBay added machine translation to eBay pages, um, it massively increased the propensity of Americans to start buying stuff from Latin America. And so, you know, and, and vice versa. So this this easy translation led to hmm. much more commerce. Um, because it, and the translations are still pretty imperfect, right? But they were good enough that you could deal with the uncertainty. They showed a some you know, fifteen to twenty percent increase in in sales just because of translation. Okay, and is so it's on the screen. So, it, so you know um, when you pull up a certain screen, sometimes it'll say, "Do you want to translate this page?" Right. Is that what you're talking about? That is so. Yes, eBay. Has, That's one example. They of were it. doing that automatically, but mm -hmm. um, if if the seller wanted it. Um, but yes, that's that's the kind of example, and that just, that makes communication much easier. Right. When uncertainty is reduced, you're you're willing to do things more, and so to the extent that oh, um, uh, maybe people will travel more if it's a little less intimidating to go somewhere where you don't speak the language at all. But if you can at least take a picture of a street sign, and and now read it. Right. And match it to the directions you want to go. That's that's a big change. That's exactly where I was headed into travel. So you think people may be more likely to travel if the language challenge is diminished by AI? Or? No one's done that study yet, so it's hard for me to... Oh, low-hanging fruit for your next paper. <laughs> uh, to really figure out on travel. So what do we know? We know 
um, uh, Michael Kummer um, has this paper showing that uh, Wikipedia pages increase travel. So it is simple reductions and uncertainty. And in particular, what he showed is when a span pages, what was it? Something along the lines of pages from, I think, Spain, but it was Southern Europe, um, were translated into German. We saw an increase in German travelers to those towns. Wow. Okay? And so that is, you know, that, that wasn't machine translation. That was human translation. But that is lowering the language barrier uh, about you know that's not about travel there, but it's about getting information about the town. Right, uh, led to an increase in travel. So does AI exist such that you and I could have a conversation either face to face or over the phone, and have our conversation simultaneously or instantly translated? So, um, not quite yet, and it's. Uh, so to the extent that there has to be a pause because your meaning isn't clear until after the sentence is finished. In the short term, it seems unlikely to be as smooth as face-to-face, right. like, uh, you know, same language. That said, um, for the purposes of business communication where you'd have a translator or uh, retail transactions where that little pause doesn't matter so much, we're going to see massive advances. For you know, casual friendship conversations, there's still going to be this awkward pause while you wait for the translation. It's going to be harder. Right. So... Uh, another question that I wanted to ask you later is about skills and jobs that are likely to grow versus go away because of right. AI. And I guess the translator is one, right? I mean, we're going to need some great translators to help us program the artificial intelligence, but then the job may go away. So, yes. So there's the vision of in some time, you know, decades in the future, these translations will be perfect. And there we don't maybe have any use for translators. In the short term... A lot of the places where we hire professional translators today, we need the translations to be very good. Right. And to get the nuances of the culture and all that right in right. a way that we're still not there with machines. Um, very, and, and, and by still in the foreseeable future. In contrast, for lots of casual um, transactions where maybe um, you're probably not going to hire a translator, but it would be nice to have a guide, uh, those will be much easier. If I were advising my children on job things, I might say translator is not the best way to go. <laughs> but at the same time, um, in the foreseeable future, there's going to be plenty of things for translators to do. Right. But they'll be, they'll have to be quite skilled. It's right. not just about translating language. It's about understanding nuances and culture and all that. So for a separate uh, podcast topic, I actually did a little bit of research for body language. I had an episode about body language and I stumbled on robot learning where Robots are being programmed to both encode and decode body language as another layer of communication. Right. So there's the verbal, what we hear, and then body language, and robots need to be able to perceive and also to communicate. Yes. It's a little bit frightening to think it, that there's all these layers of things. So, uh, or exciting, uh, <laughs> depending on your point of view. So... Uh, Daniel so Kahneman, why would it be exciting, and then okay. also why would it be scary? Okay, let's so let's start with the... So Daniel Kahneman, uh, we run this Economics of AI conference every year, and Daniel Kahneman, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, and he's a psychologist, you know, was talking about AI. So we asked him to sort of speculate on how he thought about AI and comment on the ideas of the conference so far. And one of the things he emphasized is we have this idea that, uh, for example, caring occupations uh, are inherently human mm. and that we'd want humans to be doing them. Mm. And he said, I don't think that's true. In our, in our old age, do we really want our children taking care of us? 
Uh, they're going to get frustrated. They're going to get angry. No, we want our children to come and, and love us and talk to us. But it's going to be much better to have a robot take care of us because they're not going to get frustrated with us. They're not going to get angry at us. Uh, they're going to be programmed to um, you know, deal with our both our body language and our voice right. and you know, what we're asking for. And what the doctor to, prescribes. To what the doctor prescribed to figure out how to gently nudge us in that way. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things he said along the lines of, it's not that hard to create a robot face that people respond positively to because it's gentle and kind and cute. Right. So his take was this is... Uh, especially with an aging population, this is this is a great thing, not a bad thing, because we humans can interact with each other on the things that are you know, really human, on the you know, love and caring side, and not the frustrating day to day, anger inducing, you know, take your pills, did you rest properly, right? When did you go to bed? Things. Interesting. So that's the you know, that's one ver- vision of the opportunity. So okay. you're saying that that um, some people say that AI can never take are caring type or nurturing type roles as human beings. So it could be parenting, could be nursing, for example, could be teaching. And in fact, there are examples and good examples of why we should be excited that AI can fulfill some of those roles. Yes. Uh, My examples were different from yours on purpose. So my example was was mostly about uh, taking care of senior citizens. Yep. Um, For for a particular reason, um, two, you know, one is just a demographic issue but but more importantly um the parent-child dynamics so there's if, there's if you're m- more valuable in interactions that parents and children right. can have yeah so when they're older than looking after someone med- someone's exactly. medical needs exactly um where you know uh with young children uh there's you know, a real value you know, I, or let me put this I haven't seen any evidence or anyone talk about sort of the in, that it will be better for machines to take care of young children. So I, I haven't heard that story. I guess I can imagine it to be true, but it, it's a bit of a stretch, and I, I, I don't have research to rely on, or at least you know people who've thought about it deeply to rely on. In fact, you hear the opposite. You hear TV is not a babysitter, and video right. games should not be a babysitter, and they should not be raising your children. And I have a friend that says Fortnite can't be my child's best friend and babysitter, right? Right. Um, and so, you know, there's this value to human-to-human interaction. Although, um, I don't know if you've read Kids Are All Right by Dana Boyd. No. This. So, um, so what she emphasizes in there is that we have this idea that as, you know, uh, as our kids, you know, the kids she's talking about are mostly teenagers, um, are using electronic communication more and more, and they're interacting with humans less and less. We, you know, we think about that as a bad thing, but there's, a, there's all sorts of... It's more nuanced than that. So one example that she talks about um, is that there is evidence that of a reduction in risky behavior um, because essentially kids are staying home and still interacting with their social network, but they're doing it digitally. And yes, there's risks about doing it digitally, but in some sense those risks are lower than if you're actually uh, physically present with somebody else. Right. And so, so if my 15-year-old son is at home at 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday playing video games where he's killing people with his friends online, that's yeah. actually must, much less risky than if he was out at a party, yes. you know, being exactly surrounded by all sorts of um, temptations. risky temptations, right? Yeah. So why else should we be excited about AI in addition to it leaving us of having to decide the fastest way to get to work or helping us look after our aging parents? So 
the the highest level point is similar to any other uh, new technology in the sense that it's going to make um, so in the economic sense it's going to make us more productive um, right what does that really mean it's going to make um, it's going to make us wealthier so the Society as a whole will have more resources and will have more choice in how to spend those resources. There'll be, uh, you know, there's, there's a big issue on inequality potentially. Right. Uh, but um, if we spread those resources equally or somewhat equally, uh, everybody can be better off in terms of having more choices for how to spend their time. Right. And how to spend, you know, and how to spend their money and how to right. consume. Right. So that's, that, productivity improvement is, is a good thing. Um, and that's kind of the meta and, benefit, and here. that's the meta benefit. Okay. Uh, the meta benefit comes from a whole bunch of little benefits on what does this particular technology do, um, and so then it depends on the actual then, machine learning that's happening. Absolutely right? right, and then it depends on the particular application. So language translation, we can see all sorts of benefits there. Um, it opens a, it. It's another step, I guess, in yeah. the progress of technology and making the world a smaller place. Are there other ways that we can purposefully use AI? to make us better communicators. So we've got the translating. Okay. How else can AI help us be better communicators? Um, there's a few pieces to this. So the first piece is who we communicate with. So mm. in some sense, we're getting prediction. You know, um, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, to a lesser extent, are all giving us predictions about what uh, information we want to see from whom. And so... And also increasing the access of to whom we have communication right. opportunities, right? With yes. Whom we have. Yes. That's a, you know, technically that's a platform point, not an AI point, but, um, okay. but, uh, but fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> sorry. Don't be sorry. <laughs> I'm, uh, so AI um, ends up screening who we have communications with. And so that's going to affect the nature of communications. And to the extent that the, uh, we're, so, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but it's who and what, right? Yeah. The content and, so, the, and the person who's providing the content. Right. So, uh, yes, absolutely. So it's not that hard to imagine that when you, you know, open up your phone to dial or text somebody, there's a prediction about who uh, you're most likely to want to dial or text. Mm. And um, that Beyond will, the most recent. It's beyond actually, most recent. Right. The time of day, what city you're in. Yeah. And so that can affect who you communicate with right. and potentially in very good ways, depending on how the algorithm is designed. So in terms of you know, whether this is good or bad or how this all plays out is a question of what we call reward function engineering, which is what are you telling the AI to predict? And so are you just telling the AI uh, who are you most likely to call at this moment? Mm -hmm. Or is there some other uh, sort of longer run uh, you know, maximization problem? Mm -hmm. So for example, um, every once in a while it might throw in a surprise. And so where is it? Oh, you know what? I haven't talked to Andrea in a really long time. I was just time. thinking that. I was just thinking that. It would be fantastic if yeah. if my phone actually reminded me that once a week you really enjoy calling this person or you should talk to this person. Right. So that's just that's, – to figure that out is going to be um, a challenge on uh, figuring out what to tell the machine to predict. Right. I mean, I could, of course, set myself a reminder, but wouldn't it be nice if my phone yeah, contained absolutely. the machine learning and, and algorithm to predict that without me telling it to? Right. And there's no technical reason, you know, at least at an abstract level, that that couldn't happen. There's all sorts of practical challenges, but, um, yeah, but there's opportunities there, too. So what about AI um, affecting our communication with each other across the generation? And one reason to call elderly parents is to make sure they're taking care of themselves. 
And in some sense, AI means you no longer have to do that. That could lead to two consequences. One may be better, one may be worse. The better one is then when you call them, it's a much more positive conversation. Mm -hmm. The worst one is maybe you don't bother to call them anymore. Mm. Um, And so there's an opportunity here because now the communication can be better, but it might, um, you know, as the technology advances, it might uh, reduce these casual surprise um, interactions that enable you to be close to people. True. So what about in a professional context at work? So the most obvious AI in, in work communications, I think, are these automated replies. So if you have Gmail, um, Gmail will populate what you're saying, you know, your email before you even send it. And LinkedIn has a similar function on, oh, here's what you probably want to respond to this person. It's usually something very simple, like thanks, exclamation point. Or a thumbs up. Uh, or yeah. a thumbs up or something just like that. that. But um, the first thing is that makes some communication is more efficient. It allows you to triage, you know, the emails that you actually have to pay attention to versus the ones you don't, you know, that you can just reply quickly better. Mm-hmm. Um, as that technology improves though, um, it, um, it might lead to you know, much more efficient communication between people at the organization because that right now, as you move to the top of the organization, essentially you have people who screen your, um, uh, lots of your communications and you know f- the big brother way the big brother no oh no I didn't mean the big brother way there's a big brother <laughs> way I meant the executive assistant way oh, okay um but the, both there's both um and so AI creates an opportunity because potentially it could do that better um without the sort of whims of somebody's hmm. humans have moods and they get hungry and hmm. We make better decisions when we're not hungry than when right. we're hungry and tired, etc. Right. Um, the the risk of that, then there's an important risk of that, which is that um, those decisions. It's not so much that those decisions might be biased. They will be because they're going to be trained on human data, and humans are biased. Right. Uh, but they scale, and so the issue. Mm-hmm. So this gets to issues around bias and communication, which is. Um, you know, the the headline we always see is that AI is going to be biased, and that's bad. Um, it is bad, but it's probably better than the average human because we can audit the AI and figure out why it's biased and improve it. Except when the bias is scaled. Is that where you're headed? Yeah, so it's not that we can't audit it. Yes, but we can, even a little bias, if every, you know, if it scales massively, then those few people who are affected by that small bias um, end up being massively, massively hurt. Right. And so where at the individual human level, yes, on average, we're we're probably more biased than any machine's going to be, at least designed well. But we're all individuals. But we're all individuals. Uh, and so there's some randomness and heterogeneity in how people respond. Even you know, within an individual, uh, people tend to be more biased, from what I understand of the research, uh, when they're hungry relative to when they're not hungry or when they're tired relative to they're not tired. So hmm. you have all these other, um, even within an individual, there's, there's variance that the machine is li- unlikely to have. Hmm. So there's factors that impair human thinking that would not affect a machine. Um, Here's a not-so-random question for you that's related to Talk About Talk. What communication skills will be the most important or maybe the most affected by AI? Uh, Beyond grammar and spelling, um, which in some sense will matter less because you can get that corrected, I actually don't think it's that much different. Um, At least in written, good point. In terms of 
high level skills and communication skills, I don't think an AI world is that different from a non AI world. In terms of very particular, oh, here's a type of communication that we do right now. You know, uh, we have people respond um, uh, you know, to company queries by hand, and instead we're going to have a machine do that. Um, sure, right? We're going to have chatbots instead of right. people chatting. But at a high level, the set of communication skills needed, or the set of any skills needed, uh, for example, you know, what we should teach our primary school and high school uh, age kids, I don't think it's really changed. Um, you know, beyond grammar and spelling being a little less important. I, I'm trying to answer the question also in my own mind. and I'm, yeah, I'm curious feel- to hear what your thoughts are. Well, I, th- I think you're right because... Everybody says that we don't pay enough attention to body language and our nonverbal communication, and it's way more important than we think it is. And I don't think that's going to change with AI, because then when you do meet someone face-to-face and you're not behind a screen, they're still making a lot of conclusions or judgments about you, right? Yeah. And so it still remains important. I think it's actually really useful to recognize that in a lot of cases, there's nothing new here. And so, you know, the, the... not so much about communications, but one of the questions I get most often is, I have a 10-year-old. Um, how should I get them ready for an AI world? Right. In our book, we say, you know, there's, there's predictions getting better, and there's these other things that therefore become more valuable. And so one is the ability to take actions, okay? So um, what does that mean in a practical sense? You know, uh, there's a whole bunch of action-related jobs that involve uh, physical work or... Mm-hmm. Um, so. The, the most obvious are entertainers, whether as athletes or uh, you know actors. There's a whole set of professions that are about entertainment. Podcasters? And podcasters, yes, <laughs> absolutely, um, that, that aren't going away. So then there's um, uh, what we call judgment, which is knowing what matters, which predictions to make and what to do with them. That's very much about the social sciences and the humanities and understanding what matters to, to you as an individual, to uh, as, a, as, as a society right. and to your organization. Right. And then there's actually people who need to build the machines, so there's a whole bunch of science and technology there, too. Right. Math. And so that covers you know, science, math, uh, humanities, social sciences, gym, and art, and drama. Okay, so nothing's, you know, the, those skills, the, the way they're going to manifest themselves in the workforce will be different, but the skills are all there. And I think the same is going to be true in communication. Wow, that is much more optimistic than... Uh I think I was feeling when I came in here. <laughs> so that's, that's great. I love that. We're perhaps overly fixated on the technology stuff because we're thinking someone's going to be programming the robot and the rest of us are just, you know, going to be at home unemployed. Well, no, there's people that are programming the robot, but how do they know what to program? And then all of a sudden there's all these inputs. And also on the other side, what do you do with the output? Right? Yeah. You need people all the way through. Hmm. Well, that makes me feel better. Now I'm going to ask you the five rapid-fire questions that I ask every guest. Are you ready? Ready. Number one, what are your pet peeves? People who confuse correlation with causation. People? <laughs> You're so funny. Or who say things without a citation? <laughs> a little bit of that, too. Okay. <laughs> Second question, what type of learner are you? I learn by reading. You learn by reading? Yeah. You absorb a written word. Yeah. Third question. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Um, I, I've always thought of myself as an introvert, but my job is increasingly going out and talking to people in and, and large audiences. And I find with a large audience, I seem to be more extroverted. But mm. in um, 
in casual sort of small talk conversation, I'm definitely an introvert. Interesting. So it de- depends on the size of the group that you're it depends communicating on the, with. I don't know, it seems to depend on the context. And um, you know, for me to go up and perform, that's different than me chatting. True. But you feel energized after you speak in front of a large audience? Yes. Interesting. Well, that you're you're in the right profession then, right? Because you're researching and then you're going out and you're presenting to large audiences and you're feeling energized by both. Yes. Beautiful. Okay. Question number four. Your communication preference for personal conversations. With a small number, a very small number of people who I'm very close to, obviously, obviously verbal, just talking is best. Do you mean face to face? Face to face. But otherwise, for even sort of long distance communication with those people, I like email. Email and text I kind of view as the same thing because they're both on my phone. Um, but mostly it's email. You view email and text as the same? Because um, I've, I've heard that that's not the case from other people. So I, I'm not going to write. So in terms of quick conversations with you know my wife or my friends or meeting, then it's they're substitute, perfect substitutes. There are things that you can, at least to me, there are things you can do in email that you can't do in text. Uh, you know, long formal work emails, I, I can't do those on text. Right. Um, and emojis don't work quite as well on email. Um, but you know, but for quick things, you, you know, I'll, I'll have sort of, I can have a conversation with email and text with the same person on the same, you know, huh. the same half hour. Interesting. So there's not a clear preference there. No. Interesting. Last question. Is there a podcast or a blog or an email newsletter that you find yourself recommending the most? So there's a handful of people I follow on Twitter that I find really uh, useful in terms of what they link to. Um, Eric Brynjolfsson, who studies the economics technology at MIT. He obviously posts all sorts of good stuff. Um, My co-author, Joshua Gans, in the book also posts all sorts of good stuff, and I follow him. And then um, there's a a woman whose expert is in um, uh, international security and technology named Elsa Kanya. And I find her stuff on the impact of technology on on military fascinating. How can listeners connect with you? LinkedIn is best. Okay, I'll put a, a link into your LinkedIn address in the show notes and also to your book, Prediction Machines. And I want to thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you. I don't know how you're feeling now, but when I walked out of Avi's office at the University of Toronto, I felt much more optimistic about our future with artificial intelligence. So I'm going to leave you with a list of several reasons why we should all be more optimistic about our future with AI. First, particularly relevant for some of us with teenagers at home, Many of us are concerned about the amount of screen time that our teenagers have. Avi suggested that perhaps we should be relieved that our teenagers are playing video games on Saturday night. The alternative might be that they are face-to-face with some potentially dangerous temptations. Good point. Second, here's a very specific reason why we might be optimistic about AI. Consider disaster relief management. AI-assisted technologies have been able to create real-time mapping of disaster sites and enable survivors to be located and then communicate with their families from afar. Predictive analytics are also enabling meteorologists to predict imminent weather disasters faster and with more accuracy, enabling many people to avoid the disaster altogether. That's all good, right? 
And then there's the way that AI is enabling and encouraging business and travel across different countries, different cultures, and different languages. This is thanks to AI's capabilities in terms of translation and communication. AI can also help us by doing things that we frankly don't want to do, like reminding our family members to take their meds or fighting over which route is best for a road trip. With AI, we can focus on doing the stuff we want to do. Avi's example was that a robot could look after the medical needs of our aging parents, and we can focus on loving them and doing more fun things with them. AI can also make us more productive and wealthier as a whole. This improved productivity is due to several factors, including, for example, how AI advances can help us communicate, enable collaboration, and save us time. And last, jobs. This is a big one. Instead of thinking about how AI is going to take all our jobs away so we're all unemployed, consider that there are many skills that will become even more valuable. Avi highlighted these jobs and skills related to taking action, making judgments, and building things. As he concluded, that means that skills and jobs focused on science, technology, math, humanities, social science, and the arts will still be highly valued. So don't fret. AI will certainly affect the job market, but there's still a lot of work for us humans. I think I'll leave it at that. Of course, we barely scratch the surface here. If you're interested in learning more about AI, I strongly recommend that you read Avi's book, Prediction Machines. There's a link to it in the show notes on the Talk About Talk website. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Talk About Talk. If you did, I hope you'll sign up for the weekly email blog. I know some of you have signed up, but I also know some of you are confused. Signing up for the blog and subscribing to the podcast are two separate things. If you don't sign up for the email blog at talkabouttalk.com, you're missing half the fun. We always cover things related to the podcast topics and beyond, including knowledge and strategies that will make you a more confident communicator. One last thing, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on social media or email. Talk About Talk is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My email is andrea at talkabouttalk.com. I'd love to hear from you. That's it. Thanks again for listening and talk soon.